Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again and welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcasts. And today I'm delighted to be joined once again in the studio by our regular panellists, Misdiagnosis, Prudence Deer and Dr. Band. Welcome to all of you and you first, Prudence. Uh, what have you got for us today? Hi there, Nick. It's lovely to be here, isn't it? Um, okay, look, in the second half of the show then, um, a, a report's come out from the Coroner's Court of Victoria about suicide amongst the LGBTIQ communities, and I would like to talk a little bit about that and have a look at some of the data. Mm, okay, that's going to be a confronting topic, perhaps. So it often is, a... but it's important we talk about these things. Yeah, okay, so just let listeners know that's what's coming up in the second half of the show. Second, Thank yeah. you. That's going to be compulsory listening, confronting, but compulsory. And um, Dr. Band, you've got some very special guests lined for us, for us on the Zoomy thing, haven't you? Yes, we're uh, very fortunate to be joined this morning by uh, Dr. Christy Weber, who is a past president of the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons, and Dr. Annette Hollian, who's the current Australian Orthopaedic Association president. Both of these um, uh, women are the first females to be presidents of their respective orthopaedic associations and they've done a lot of work through their career and continue to do so in encouraging diversity um, amongst the uh, orthopaedic surgeons in the countries they represent. Extraordinary thought from my point of view. Female orthopaedic surgeon was uh, something that didn't exist in my day, let alone precedence of things. That's a complete turnaround, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's no small part to their contributions to the industry that, um, that, that has actually happened. When did we first start training orthopaedic surgeons, women orthopaedic surgeons in this country, do you know? We were, well... Um, we'll go into that, but it was in the mid-80s. Wow. Um, and we'll yeah. also talk, touch briefly, hopefully Dr. Weber can give us a bit more insight into Ruth Jackson, who was an orthopedic surgeon, first orthopedic surgeon ever to be admitted to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in the 1930s. It explains why my experience as a medical student was devoid of female orthopedic surgeons since I finished training at the end of the 70s. Ouch. Ooh. Oh, misdiagnosis. Welcome back to the, to the studio. How are you today? A little bit damp around the edges, Dr Nick, after all the rain we've had over the weekend, but otherwise very happy to be back here. Um, now, <laughs> we're going to go now to one of my favourite parts of the show. Oh yes, it's the dog part shout out. <laughs> <laughs> And, and today, uh, this was absolutely glorious. Last weekend in the dog park, these people came along and they had little picnic bags and so on and were setting up a table and all the dogs started clustering around and everybody said, what is going on here? Someone is having their picnic in the dog park. That is just mad. Well, it turns out it was a dog's first birthday. <laughs> 
<laughs> and they had real doggy bags. They had doggy bags of treats for visiting hounds. So uh, this was the first birthday for Mac and Lemon, two go- glorious golden retrievers. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely beautiful, beautiful dogs uh, with their owners in the park. Um, and all the doggies around getting a doggy bag, which contained a ball and a biscuit. I mean, what's not to love? <laughs> Come on, dog lovers. <laughs> right. Want to Rather... see pictures? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I did take some pictures. If anyone here is good on the Facebook thingy, we might get them up on our... See the Golden Retriever puppies. Yes. Oh, we'll get golden I want retriever. to see these doggy bags. I want to see the puppies with their doggy bags. It sounds right, gorgeous. We'll, we'll see if the younger members of the radiotherapy team can assist me with the whole <coughs> Facebooky thingy. All right, well, look, enough of the dog part shout out. Let's go to some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Misdiagnosis, what's in the news today? Well, Dr Nick, as I'm sure everybody's aware, we've had some very heavy rainfall across Victoria mm, over the last Yes, quite a lot of it so. came into our bathroom. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I think, um, you know, obviously it's affected people really significantly as well. But one of the things that um, the rainfall has also um, affected is the mosquito numbers around Victoria because this heavy rainfall actually creates the ideal breeding ground for mosquitoes because they love those little puddles of stagnant water where they can uh, lay their eggs which can grow and develop and you know whilst getting a mosquito bite is um, obviously it's not not the best it's a bit itchy a bit annoying the thing that's really concerning for this is that researchers are predicting that the Ross River virus which is a virus carried by mosquitoes may encroach further towards suburban Melbourne than it ever has before with this flooding so we've got higher risk of these mosquito-borne diseases. Now, Ross River is one of those ones a lot of people have heard about, but it's a slightly confusing beast, isn't it? Do you want to just enlighten us on where, number one, where normally you get your Ross River from, and two, what actually is it? Yeah, so Ross River virus, so as I said, carried by mosquitoes. The symptoms are um, polyarthritis, so that sort of symmetrical swelling in the joints, feeling a bit muscle achy, a bit feverish, and sometimes a rash. But the thing about Ross River virus is that you, the symptoms can last for up to three months, and there's not really a treatment for it. Oh, now, great. it normally doesn't come as close to Victoria. It's normally sort of more isolated to more regional areas. But with the flooding and with the new sort of um, stagnant pools of water that may be around, they've sort of predicted that it might encroach more towards metropolitan Melbourne as well. Um, now, the, the good news about this is there are some simple things that people can do to prevent either getting eaten by mosquitoes or to prevent the mosquitoes laying eggs in their garden. And that's just things like getting rid of stagnant puddles of water. So if you know you've got, for instance, a pot plant out the back that you've been meaning to put that really nice, you know, sort of succulent in or something, you haven't got around to it and it's filled up with water, just tip it out, turn it upside down. It sounds banal, doesn't it? But um, this is one of the measures that's been introduced in countries like Singapore where they send send the water police around to make sure you don't have just even a tiny thing of water because it's amazing. A million mosquitoes can breed in a few centimetres of leftover stagnant water. Dr. Band, you've got you've got an excited look about mosquitoes on your face. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always find it um, interesting that it's, it's the simplest things that make the biggest difference in public health. So, yeah, doing the doing the small things right um, very often often makes a huge difference in t- in the outcome for uh, large groups of people. 
Yeah, so so reducing the mozzies breeding, obviously a good idea, wandering around the backyard and everywhere else just tipping out those little bits of stagnant water. What else are people what else should people be looking out for? I mean, you've you've raised their anxiety about Ross River <laughs> fever now. Well, the the other things to do are um, at the hours of sort of dawn and dusk, just wearing loose fitting clothing as opposed to tighter clothing. Mosquitoes can bite through those yoga pants. Um, so just wearing some loose fitting clothing. Um, and then of course mosquitoes repellent if you know that you've you know got a couple of mosquitoes in the backyard or you're having dinner outside pop the mosquito repellent on and what sort of mosquito repellent works oh i think that the, <laughs> that sort of 40 percent deep that really high toxic level that'll melt your watch bands that that level of deep <laughs> so so from my memory talking with um one of the infectious diseases people yes you do need deet the diethyl toluamide that's the ingredient that mozzies really hate uh, and you can get these ghastly products containing 40, 60 or even 80% of DEET. Uh, apparently 15% is enough for most of us. Uh, you don't have to go too toxic. Uh, but it's like people get a bit scared of DEET because of all sorts of scary um, things written about DEET. But it's actually a very safe product and it actually works. Yes. So, <laughs> and you mentioned, I think you mentioned Japanese encephalitis as well. Is that yeah. another one that we should be worried about? Yeah, so Japanese encephalitis, uh, prior to this year, had never actually been detected in Australia. It hadn't um, come this far. Uh, however, this year, so in 2022, we've actually had two deaths from Japanese encephalitis oh, in New goodness. South Wales. A man in his 60s and a man in his 70s both died of it. Now, the thing about Japanese encephalitis is it's a really hard one to... Um, I guess sort of monitor because it can children get really unwell with it. It can cause really severe symptoms in children. But in adults, it's less than or around about sort of 1% of the affected population will show symptoms of Japanese encephalitis. So, of course, really difficult to monitor because if you've got 99% of people walking around with Japanese encephalitis who have no idea that they have it, it's very hard to get sort of, um, you know, sort of population health numbers on this as well. Um, but it is just a sort of another reminder of just being careful around mosquitoes at the moment. It's the first time we We've had it in Australia. Um, so, yeah, just uh, keep those stagnant puddles you know, uh, <laughs> empty and wear loose-fitting clothing. Ross River fever, Japanese encephalitis, prevention definitely better than cure. So empty out those little bits of water in the backyard, get that deet on your clothes and stay away from the mozzies. Oh, we'll be back right after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And on Zoom now, I'm very hopeful um, that we've got uh, Dr... Oh, well, you better introduce them, Dr. Pants. Yeah, I think I, think I should introduce these two special guests. So um, just a brief... Um, brief introduction. Picture this. It was the 1920s and people thought that women were frail and weak and didn't have the stuff. Amelia Earhart couldn't make her living as a pilot, so she took a job as a social worker. Then she got a call. It was a proposal. We have someone willing to fund the first female transatlantic flight. Our first choice is backed out, but rest assured, you won't, be, um, you won't actually fly the plane. And we are going to send two men along as chaperones. I will pay them a lot of money and you won't get anything. Oh, and you might die while doing it. <laughs> of course, she said yes. That's what people do, who defy the odds do. Whether it's flying 
or busting stereotypes. None of this would have happened without taking her first chance. Comparisons to Amelia Earhart's journey to become a pilot can easily be made between, um, uh, with our guests today, both of whom have broken through gender stereotypes to make significant contributions to orthopaedic surgery. Our first guest, Dr. Christy Weber, past president of the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons, became the first female president um, of the Academy in 2019. Uh, she's the chief orthopaedic oncology chief um, orthopaedic surgeon in the department of orthopaedic oncology um, at the school of medicine at the university of pennsylvania and is the director of the sarcoma program at penn's cancer center she specializes in treating people with bone and soft tissue tumors as well as limb salvage techniques She's helped instigate and implement an aaos strategic plan to improve the diversity of orthopaedic surgeons in america and then our second guest, or equal first, is group captain and president, current president of the AOA, the AOA Australian Orthopaedic Association, um, Dr Annette Hollian. Um, in 2021, she became the first female president of the AOA. Dr Hollian is a reservist in the RAAF and she holds the rank of group captain and is the clinical director for surgery and perioperative services for the RAAF. Um, women were accepted into orthopaedic training program um, for the first time in 1986 and Dr Hollian was one of the first two women who, sta- who started training in this year. She's undertaken five deployments to war zones, including three tours of Afghanistan and the first responder in several humanitarian disaster responses, both as a civilian and in uniform, to the tsunami in PNG in 1998, Banda Aceh in December 2004, and Western Sumatra earthquake in uh, Nias in 2005. Um, she's also um, on the board of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons as the chair and board of surgical education and training. Um, that introduction is longer than my life. <laughs> um, welcome, Dr. Weber, and welcome, um, Dr. Hoare, and thanks for joining us on Radiotherapy. Thanks, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. I've had a longer life than you. <laughs> Can you tell us a little about um, your path in orthopaedic surgery? Uh, my early path, the path to get on, I think I was just pretty naive that I didn't know women didn't do orthopaedic surgery. <laughs> but as an intern, I really enjoyed looking after people in the emergency department with injuries. And um, and I did my primary, we, at the time you had to do a primary in surgery and, and managed to get on in what was equivalent of my PGY4 year um, to start training the next year. And then uh, in my career, it's just been really varied. And I think that's one of the points I like to make out people. It doesn't matter where you start in a career. Actually, you can shift and pivot and change and go off in other directions. So I started out in children's orthopaedics, children and um, adults, um, specialised in cerebral palsy and then shifted to disaster response, developing, um, helping in low- and middle-income countries, then joined the military, done a lot of disaster response and military work, and then this governance work with the colleges that I belong to. 
Amazing. And we have you on the program to talk about your contribution to orthopedic surgery. But one of the main things that um, both of you have contributed is the um, focus on uh, diversity amongst um, orthopedic trainees and orthopedic surgeons. What does diversity mean to you? Um, it, it means allowing everybody who's capable um, to do a particular role to have access to that role. So um, for me, it, it's... Yes, it is about gender specifically because that's the area I've been in. But I think everything we do to help gender will also help with cultural and linguistic diversity. Um, I think uh, ageism is going to be one of the hard things we come about. But it's having those people not only included but then valued for what they bring to an organisation because you bring difference. We need to be People need to be valued for the difference um, and that's celebrated rather than all being tried to made to be the same. Excellent. And what do you think the benefits um, to patients directly um, are for having a diverse group of surgeons treating them? Well, I think it gives patients a choice. Um, <clears throat> we are only about 5.8% of our active um, orthopedic surgeons in Australia are women. Um, so most people actually don't have a choice. It will be a male that they're going to see. But there are a lot of people who um, would prefer to choose either a female or someone from their own cultural background, um, someone from their own language group. And that gives a much better um, patient-doctor relationship because for surgery, it's not just about the technical attitude to surgery, the technical expertise in the operating theatre. Surgery is just a point on a line of care for any particular injury or illness and the relationship that can be built between the clinician and the patient is really important for their experience and outcomes. So misdiagnosis here, thank you so much for coming on the program with us today. Now, is it, sorry, is it Miss Hollian or Dr Hollian? It would be Dr Hollian. We're trying to re remove those stereotypes. Yeah, so we, um, I had a look online and it was sort of you, were, you had a couple of different um, different names on different websites. I just wanted to confirm for us here. Yes. Um, uh, well, through the, through the College of Surgeons, we're trying to all go as doctors so that there isn't a, um, uh, a unless you're a professor, which I'm not, uh, we're all trying to use doctor as our titles. Good to know. Thank you. Now, I was wondering, so you, you was it in the year 2000 that you joined the Air Force? Is that right? Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And what, what drew you into, because it sounds, so you were already working as a doctor at that stage and then um, you joined the reserves at, at that stage as well. What, what was it that drew you to that? Yes. I'd been a consultant uh, for 10 years then, misdiagnosis, and um, I had, um, I'd already started doing some work in Papua New Guinea and I'd been, um, I was very drawn to, helping people less fortunate um, than us in our community with their access to healthcare and in particular orthopaedic surgery. And I had been visiting up on the north coast of Papua New Guinea at Wewak and Vonimo, supporting a surgeon up there and uh, providing some education and training to her and her registrars. And then there was a disaster up there. There was a tsunami in Itapi in July 1998 and I joined with Defence, or def I managed to talk Defence into um, taking a civilian team from Monash up, and they really just flew us there, and then we worked in the hospitals we were familiar with working in. But it was just incredibly hard, and um, 
I desperately wanted to do work but was lacking a lot of things. But I was seeing Hercules fly in and out all the time. And I went, if ever I did anything like this again, I'd do it in uniform. I'd have some control over what might come in on those planes, which was a bit of, um, no, it's not quite how it works. Um, but it was the next year, 1999, when there were the troubles in East Timor broke out after a referendum. You might, um, you may not recall. Um but there was a, a, essentially a civil war broke out in East Timor and Dili was sacked and uh, Australia went in under a UN banner on the 20th of September. And at that time, Defence didn't have many um, surgeons. And so I was um, commissioned then to help provide service in East Timor. And my, when I joined, we hadn't been at war with anyone for a long time. And my expectation and Defence's expectation was that my main role would be to provide um, surgical support in humanitarian assistance operations in the South Pacific, which was exactly what I wanted to do. It's fascinating stuff. I imagine it would be a relatively maybe male-driven field at that stage as well in the defence. Is that right? Um, well, in health and particularly in Air Force, there's actually a strong um, predominance of women, but I'm not sure, but I think I may have been the first female surgeon in Air Force. I don't have all the history, but I'm not aware of another um, woman. But it didn't take long before we actually, I think, had virtually as many women orthopaedic surgeons in Air Force as we had our male orthopaedic surgeons. So um, it just takes a bit of role modelling to help women realise that they can uh, contribute just as well as the men. And, hey. I'd, and I will just say that the equity in Air Force opened my eyes to the inequity in our public hospital system. It was, I was treated just as another person who, who brought skills to the table and wasn't constantly being othered and um, separated off to the side. I, I was really valued for what I brought to the table. So it really changed my perception um, as to what we were experiencing in our public hospitals in Australia. Can I just ask you as a GP myself, one of the issues that our trainees and registrars have is about uh, maternity leave and that sort of thing, a fairly unforgiving system, often medical training for, for that. What's the story in obstetrics in orthopaedics uh, for women who might want to have families as well as being people like yourself? Okay, well, for all surgical specialties, you can have up to, in training, and you can have up to six weeks leave in a six-month block. And if you want to take more than that leave, then, or need to, by virtue of your health needs, then you actually um, can't have that six-month block accredited to your training, which is, um, I think that's still a problem for us. We, if you want to take leave, it's got to, and it has to be in a six-month block. You can't take less than than that if you're going to have some time off. So, a lot of women end up taking a six or twelve months leave for their um, maternity leave, and that's pretty common across that's across all the surgical specialties. There's a, in New South Wales when somebody starts their surgical training, the government puts them on a five-year contract. So if you start as a female on your surgical training, orthopaedic training in New South Wales, then you go to Canberra um, for a year and come back. Your maternity leave crosses the border. But for our other states, that doesn't happen. So if you're a Victorian trainee and then you go down to Tasmania and come back, it's all one-year contract, so you don't have that continuity and it's a real fight each time uh, around getting maternity leave. So it, it's a problem we're taking up with the federal government. 
It's often said, uh, Dr. Julian, that uh, if you can see it, you can be it. Um, what do you think are some of the more successful and possibly unsuccessful strategies you've seen implemented across the world to change the diversity of surgery and maybe orthopaedic surgery in particular? Um, well, first of all, to the if you can't see it, you can't be it or the flip side of that. Um, I spent years not believing um, that was correct because it wasn't my experience, but it is the experience of a lot of other people. Um, so it's actually why I ran for the AOA presidency. In, I ran in 2018, was unsuccessful, but then got on in 2019 because in our very male-dominated fields, it requires a lot of men voting for you um, to be able to get on, and that's that's a hard gig, actually. Um, and so the things that we've been able to institute... The, at Rex, when I got onto the council there in 2015, I noticed, I've been doing some reading, but also noticed we didn't have any early career women uh, presenting at our national meetings, not much at our state meetings, and there was no breastfeeding uh, facilities for women to come and be able to express breast milk or feed a baby, but also participate in the scientific congress. So we did drive through at Rex that there would be um, there would, at all meetings and training courses, breastfeeding facilities for women, which essentially usually involved um, expressing breast milk, um, and that we would link people into childcare, have offer childcare facilities. That immediately changed the profile of people attending our annual scientific meeting. In Sydney in 2018, there were lots of men and women walking around uh, with little babies and baby carriers on them uh, in between meetings or um, being able to socialise because, in fact, a lot of the benefit of scientific meetings is meeting up in corridors with other people and the networking that happens. Um, but it changed the flavour and it, it meant that women, um, more than women than um, was previously, we could participate in the scientific meeting. So... I think um, that was a really big change. And I think the COVID um, has had some benefits, the shift to being able to do things online, do presentations online, pre-record presentations, has also meant that women don't end up five years behind in their career because they haven't been able to present their scientific work at meetings in those early years of child rearing. Um, and other things, we've set targets. So the... At AOA and at RACS, we've tried to make sure that we don't have any just mannels um, up the front. If they can't find females to speak on a topic, which usually means we haven't looked too hard, um, we have to at least have female moder moderators sitting up the front of that session so that the women in the audience can see that it's possible um, to be a leader in surgery and to have those roles. Fascinating stuff, especially with um, you know changing the way the conferences are run with with people with babies walking around. It sounds you know, wonderful. Now, I wanted to come back to a point that you made before about when you were in the air force, feeling like you were treated in some ways more equally there and appreciated for the skill set that you yourself provided. Do you think there's a lot that our public health systems and our public hospitals, in particular, can learn from the military in this? Absolutely, and. Um it helps that everybody's in the same uniform because you look like you look. There's a similarity when we're all in the same uniform, but um, be, partly because we dress differently. But I think there's just a different expectation of what my male colleagues are entitled to and what they'll be offered compared to what the access women have to what's on offer. 
and and that it goes to include um, that it goes to include salary. There's um, I haven't seen the breakdown yet in Victoria. We have to the big public hospitals have to report salary now, but I don't know that it's been broken down. But I know that a lot of women are paid the award wage, and I know that most of my male peers are in fact negotiated above award wage. And wow. it's just like it's a no go zone. Like you don't discuss your pay, but in fact women will find if they did, that they're being paid at a lower level and that suits hospitals and people. But I think if that was out in the open, that we, we know there's a pay gap um, for women. And you also mentioned before that you felt like people were, I guess, sort of appreciated for their individual skill sets that they could bring, what it was that they themselves were bringing, which in medicine sometimes it feels like we're just filling a role and you're just there to do a particular job regardless of what your skill set is. Can you talk to that at all about what that experience was like being sort of valued for for who you were as a person, not just, um, you know, necessarily uh, turning up to fill a role? Yes, it, it's, um, it's, a little, it's a little bit more around being othered in the public hospitals that um and constantly being as a female doctor constantly being mistaken for someone else in the healthcare team whether it's the nurse or the patient care attendant or the person who brings the meals around just because you moved their breakfast nearer to them um there are very few men who are mistaken for the patient care attendant or the nurse or the cleaner um uh, and it's it's assumed even if i have a tall young man in a ward round as we go around it'll be assumed that the tall young man is the person in charge in the group even though you go look can you not see the wrinkles I'm you know seriously <laughs> at my career's end here um I'd be the woman in charge um I think you know it's partly height but you know most men are taller than us but it's um it's just anothering that you made to you're not never made to feel you feel yourself um I have I have felt that I am different to others and I'm treated in a different um, way to other people in my public hospitals. Annette, it's, it, it's, been just, it's just been lovely to hear from you. Sadly, time is upon us. I just want to let you know, a text has come through from someone saying the Associate Prof- Professor Claudia Di Bella in Melbourne Uni is an awesome lower limb orthopaedic surgeon. So we're getting shout outs to women orthopaedic surgeons left, right and centre. She is awesome. We've just awarded her a leadership award, which will be announced next week. <laughs> so she's just, just been given the award. Breaking for, news. Online, wow. <laughs> just yeah. Breaking news. She is a fabulous woman. Just been given the award for awesomeness. That's fantastic. Um, Annette, thank you so much for your time. We'll have to have you on again um, and have a great day. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. That was um, Dr. Annette Holian, uh, orthopaedic surgeon. Absolutely fabulous. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. So just a little bit of a warning about what we're going to talk about. So um, uh, we're going to talk about suicide. So if that's not something you want to hear about, probably time to go and make a cup of tea. But it would be good if you can hang on in there um, because I think we've got some important things to talk about. And having conversations, safe conversations about suicide, I think is really important in terms of generating better understanding and social change. We have a lot of evidence that... 
you know, it, it, the, the old view perhaps that talking about something as serious as suicide might encourage people um, is not true. We do know that actually having those conversations creates greater access and information and also perhaps creates an environment where people who need help will feel that they can ask for it. So um, on the 14th of this month, the Coroner's Court of Victoria released a report um, which is quite sort of groundbreaking in that it is a report about suicide amongst LGBTIQ populations within within Victoria. And this is pretty groundbreaking because there just hasn't been the data to really understand what might be happening amongst various groups really within within our communities, but in particular um, those under their sort of LGBTIQA banner. And we do have quite a reasonable amount of information that we've been able to glean through surveys of those communities and groups that um, suicidality, suicidal behaviours are much higher, you know, prevalence than perhaps in the general population. But we don't really have hard data about the outcomes. So, um, and I think it's just before we kind of go into too much about hard data, let's not lose sight of the human element of all of this. I mean... Death is a tragedy and suicide is a, is a great tragedy. And it's, it leaves many bereaved people with um, a sense of you know, unanswered questions and stigmatisation within our sort of communities. Um, I came across... A, there, there was a, a recent statistic I read which was sort of, you know, that um, those impacts... Up to 130 people can be impacted by one suicide. Oh. Right. Yeah, look at, you know, there's family, there's parents, there's siblings, there's children, there's friends, there's co-workers, um, there's first responders who may be, you know, there's medical and support staff who can all be involved in this tragic sort of unfolding. And, and while I understand we're focusing on a particular community, one of the things about suicide is it is distressingly common, isn't it, in this country? Well, yes, and again, a part of, um, to answer your question, but also just in view of the, you know, the, the reservations about talking about it historically, the stigma that's often associated with suicide and why people might have died that way, means that we don't really have perhaps a, a context. Um, so let's just talk some numbers, but again, each number is a person. Um, so um, last year there were 3,144 deaths in Australia oh. due to suicide. That was recorded, if you like, mm. by coroners. So there may be others that we don't actually... Um, that don't sort of get into the system that way. And in Victoria last year, 675 it's one of the commonest. It's one of the sort of you know commonest causes of death, especially amongst people between fifteen, um, aged over sort of fifteen and um, and twenty four. You know, so like at ages where people would, if they're going to die, would die from injuries or you know some sort of trauma, perhaps or some um, diseases, but you know certainly not dying of old age at that point. So suicide also is preventable. That's one of the things I think we've we've been learning over the years. And so the more that we can do to inform and educate, um, the more likely we're going to be able to intervene and make a difference to some of these statistics. Um, but we do have to ask these questions. How many? You know, when? How often? And so on. So, you know, 
that we do see those sorts of numbers. And when we compare something like uh, three th- over 3,000 deaths Australia-wide um, attributable to book suicide, that compares with, you know, like significantly smaller numbers with regards to, um, you know, road traffic, for example, or other causes of death. So, you know, it's important that we kind of do see that it's a pretty big problem. And we're talking about a really young population group here in terms of accounting for um, sort of the higher numbers, that 15 to Mm -hmm. uh, 24-year-old population. Have we seen – is this something you can answer about how the data has changed with COVID as well? Are we seeing more or less or changes in the demographics? Well, uh, yeah, look, I mean, I think the key thing that was certainly apparent was that there were – actually, the number of suicides dropped off in Mm -hmm. 2020, Mm -hmm. but then they started to come back – um, I think there's a, couple, there's a couple of issues there. One is, again, about recording that sort of information, um, but also that, you know, as, P, as we emerged, um, emerged from the pandemic, which we haven't emerged <laughs> from yet, um, you know, people have um, had, had to contend with adif- additional stresses, stresses around, um, you know, uh, isolate, social isolation, um, possibly employment and work, loss of employment, um, being locked down and possibly in less than safe circumstances with families who might be problematic for across the board, but particularly for um, LGBTIQA plus people, um, those environments can sometimes be hostile and it would be very difficult for them to get away from from threats um, and, and distress and also very difficult for them to connect in a social, meaningful way, which is one of the things that we... Well, I think we're very clear. Will will protect us from from um, you know from th- perhaps thoughts of you know is life worth living and what can I do about it? Mm. Um, I think it's important. Though, one of the so there were numbers that came out of the of the coroner's report, and what they were able to identify was two hundred and eight suicides in the last ten years within the LGBTI community. So, if you like, that's comparing with that average. You know, in, that, that was Victoria. And can I just ask, how how do they know who belongs to which community in that sense? Basically, right, very good question. Thanks, Nick. Um, It basically comes down to um, information provided by others and also whether um, the coroner... um, asks, I suppose, the right questions, whether the investigation... So very often police are present at, um, at, a, at a death, so um, it's certainly an unexplained one. So um, they, there are, there's a form, Form 83, that they fill in, um, but it doesn't specifically prompt for information about the gender... Well, about, about let's say, the sexuality or the gender identity. So somebody, you know... A reasonable and investigating officer will look at a scene and make draw conclusions, some of which they will have no idea about. And one of the sorts of rules was, anyway, that um, you know questions, if you like, about sexuality or identity are only really taken into account if it's deemed relevant to the cause of death. So, if you don't think that somebody being LGB um, is a contributing factor to their death, you may not ask those questions at all. Which I guess sort of leads us to mass under-reporting in these figures as well, that, you know, sometimes, and as we say, every every one of these figures is a person, but this data is only collected when it's been deemed to be, in inverted commas, relevant to 
the, the cause Basically of death or what the correct. coroner is, or is looking people, for. Yes, I mean, you know, obviously there are contributors, like, you know, people will, uh, will, will be witnesses at a coronial inquiry or whatever, and they may well put some information in. Um, but quite often families, for example, may not want to disclose information about their their sort of relative. Um, community may not want to do it. Many people in the community maybe have been, if you like, in the closet are not out particularly or they don't wouldn't want that information that's deep this is deeply personal information as well which is a bit of you know that's where we have that kind of a bit of a conflict between providing information like we didn't get much information out of about sort of identity out of the the last census because there were only you know very limited questions asked about that so it's not something that goes on necessarily on people's records. So unless we can get information from, um, from, from doctors, for example, who may have that information or other medical services or, other, or from relatives and so on, it can be quite difficult to piece that together. So you are absolutely right, misdiagnosis, that um, these numbers are, gr- I think, grossly undercounted. We are talking about a a very personal and confronting topic of suicide and if this raises issues that immediately someone's looking uncomfortable and needs help, Lifeline is 131114 and QLife is on 1800-184-527. Um, Prudence, I just one of the things you mentioned about recording of this. I think if people are concerned about maybe discussing sexuality with uh, investigating people, police, and so on, it doesn't go down on a death certificate. So that, um, that, that would perhaps be an important thing for people to realise: sexuality is not recorded on death misdiagnosis. And I think the the reason why we're talking about this, and part of the reason why we're talking about the numbers in particular, is because this data will then drive funding, which will then and drive Absolutely. what will help prevent yep. this. And that's why we're talking about it. It's mm-hmm. If we can get the data solidly enough, we can show an area of need and we can advocate for more help in that area. Such an important okay. point. And so let's let's talk about that, Prudence, because yeah. uh, it's, it's sort of one thing about? is having the data. What are we going to do with it? How are we going to make this Absolutely. something positive? Look, it's, about, it's about visibility. So, we, you know... Different sort of groups within our communities and our societies do have different needs. We know that. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So any, you know, suicide prevention sort of strategies and so on need to take into account who the kind of target audiences are. And so it is absolutely clear that when we look at the the data that's been collected from surveys, as I said, the suicidal kind of behaviours amongst LGBTI people seem to be considerably higher like multiples higher. In other words, attempted suicides run at, you know, anything from sort of five to ten times the sorts of levels that we might see um, amongst what we could call the, the broader general population. So um, we need sort of tailored responses and that is what data can actually help us do if we can collect that. And you're right, the, the sad kind of part, I suppose, of the story is that ultimately to get those sort of strategies implemented or even developed and implemented we need to understand what it is you know that that is are the needs of those groups and so we need to collect the information we need to understand the scale of the sort of issues and how to um you know to provide those supports because one of those things is that for example i mean you're talking about the documentation and and death certificates but many people will in in lgbtiq communities 
um, feel reticent of interactions with the police, interactions with the coroners, and actually interactions with medical professionals. So they are frequently fearful because of, um, uh, you know, being uh, discrimination, being marginalised, um, being treated poorly in, in an unequal sort of fashion. And that is one of the sort of key factors that leads to the poorer sort of mental health outcomes. I think it's really important to understand that being gay or lesbian or transgender is not an illness in itself. It doesn't make you more suicidal. But living as a person with those identities within a, a society which is quite often intolerant to diversity, I mean, it goes beyond what we were talking about earlier about gender diversity, but, you know, this, this includes a whole range of, of identities and cultural sorts of, um, um, you know, components, that it's, it's when people are perceived to be in a minority when they lack the supports that their mental health declines and that's the sort of situation then coupled with other risk factors such as yeah you know being unemployed that sort of being isolated from community and family that actually become those are risk factors for suicide and we know that and we can try and help and intervene so, so talking about what we can do, um, one of the things you mentioned is there's often a reluctance to engage with health professionals. I was told that just putting a little rainbow sticker up in the waiting room is a good indication um, to people coming in that uh, maybe this practice is a little more friendly to that community than might be otherwise considered. Is that effective? Uh, look, I think it encourages people that, you know, it is absolutely um, a flag or a symbol. Um, it's really important, though, you can live up to that standard because you can blow <laughs> your credibility in, you know, the, as soon as somebody walks into a medical yes. practice, for example. You know, it's just simple things like just waiting for people to give you their kind of name and, you know, how they like to be spoken to. Um, having forms that are, you know, that are inclusive or at least um, have spaces on them for you to, for example, just put what is your preferred name, you know, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to the name that might be on your birth certificate. And this is something I find incredibly frustrating in the public health system is that our our um, electronic medical records, they have legal names on them because yes. they're attached to Medicare. And yes. so the amount of times that people come into hospital and they are given, they are called by whatever their name is on their Medicare card. Yes. And it, it, there is no way currently that our system can change that. On our, this is just the electronic system, not mm. you know, not not a personal system, and it it is so frustrating because people are, are, are misnamed all the time in hospital. Yes. Is there no space for preferred name or something like that? So his name might be Anthony, but he prefers being called Jim. So I put it in my notes. I right. put you know, brackets in, something rather, but not rather, in the electronic. But in the electronic, oh. in the electronic data, because it is linked to their Medicare and it's linked to their My Health record, it is their legal yeah. name. It's, it's really difficult. I mean, some practices go to extra lengths, like whether it's put it in your notes or there's another field that you can use in your, you know, your patient management system that allows you to put in a, diff, you know, a nickname, if you like. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, from my brief understanding about suicide in this, in this um, patient or, or population, I, I feel like uh, amongst all people, suicide is like a very lonely or, or, the, or the events that lean up to suicide or potential suicide is a very lonely time with, where you need uh, support and you feel like not, no one is in that situation 
just like you were in. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the um, community centre that was maybe open in the last couple of years in St Kilda for LGBTQI uh, people and whether that sense of belonging and community centre um, will help um, in the prevention of suicides. Yeah, look, I mean, the more, again, the more visibility these sorts of services can have and accessibility for people so that they can go there, that, you know, being able to mix with others who have sort of similar challenges, be able to share coping strategies and so on. Absolutely, you know, isolation is really a significant factor in so many mental health and in therefore actually physical health issues as well. And um, as we said before, that lifeline number was 13 11 14. But you've also got some other numbers and other um, yeah, resources. As you said, quickly. it's not a one-size-fits-all. No, quickly. But for those, um, uh, Switchboard Victoria has launched also in the last week and a half um, a fantastic resource website called Charlie. That's C-H-A-R-L-E-E. Standing for Connection, Hope action resources and lived experience education so you know if you are um, concerned in any way if you're concerned for someone else if you're worried about your own health in these areas or if you're a professional who wants to know a bit more um, go to www.charlie so that's c-h-a-r-l-e-e.org.au and uh, have a look at that amazing website resource and also um, did we do q life 1800 184 Five two seven. That may be helpful as well. So that's and that the Q Life runs from three pm to midnight every day. Oh, thank you, Prudence. Such a such a distressing topic, but such a very very important one. Thank you for highlighting that for us. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The wonderful text come through after that glorious in- interview with Dr. Annette Holian. Um, a text that sent in Fiona uh, said, uh, I love that interview. And so I Googled her and look what came up. And what came up was pictures of men. <laughs> oh, doesn't that say it all about something? I don't know, the world of orthopaedic surgery, but fantastic to have the women getting in there. Uh, th- thank you so much to our wonderful guests, Dr. Annette Holy, and unfortunately, Christy Weber didn't manage to get onto the Zoom, but we may get her another time. Thanks also to the multi talented Dr. Nick T, Misdiagnosis, Prudence Dear, and Dr. Band. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.